Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from the Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW. Heard around the state on Utah Public Radio. I'm Benjamin Wood, filling in for Roger McDonough. Today on the show, the Utah Utes and BYU Cougars prepare to meet up at Rice-Eccles Stadium for the state's big rivalry game. Representative Jason Chaffetz calls for another investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Mike Weinholz addresses accusations of religious bigotry. And the summer's algal blooms prompt a deeper look into Utah's water quality and treatment. Those and other topics on the show today. Joining me this morning, Salt Lake Tribune, Washington, D.C. Bureau reporter Thomas Burr is on the phone. Good morning, Tommy. Good morning, Ben. And in the studio, we have uh, government editor Dan Harry. Welcome, Dan. Good morning, Ben. And also sports uh, from the sports desk, Kyle Gunn is with us. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Just visiting. And uh, squeaking in right under the wire, we have environment reporter Emma Penrod. Welcome to the show, Emma. Hi, good morning. Listeners, you can join the conversation. What caught your attention from this past week's news? Put your comments and questions in the comments section at sltrib.com or call us at 801-355-TALK. That's 801-355-8255. Tommy Bird, let's start with some news out of Washington. Uh, Congressman Jason Jaffetz calling for another investigation into the emails of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, Is this a repeat of investigations that have already been completed? You know, and I, uh, this is the second one in uh, as many months. Uh, uh, Jason James has requested the Department of Justice investigate uh, Secretary Clinton's uh, use of her, uh, you know, private email server and questions about deleted emails. Uh, he's uh, obviously this is kind of his job in so many ways. The job of the chairman of the Oversight Committee is to investigate, you know, possible wrongdoing in government. But uh, a lot of Democrats are saying this is completely partisan, that obviously he's doing this because Hillary Clinton is a uh, the Democratic nominee for president. Uh, it's, it's kind of his role as chief antagonist in many ways uh, to Secretary Clinton, to the Democrats. Uh, when, you're, when you're a chair of the Oversight Committee, uh, it does become overly partisan because they don't really want to probe their own party necessarily. They want to probe the, uh, the, the Democrats, uh, especially when Democrats control the White House. Uh, and in this situation, he's already said that it doesn't matter if Secretary Clinton wins the election or not. He's going to keep pursuing uh, this issue of the private email server. Given his position as chairman, uh, is is this request just a request, or, or is this likely to launch a full investigation? You know, he can only request the DOJ do the investigation. He can't, you know, force them in any way. It's executive branch versus legislative branch. But Jay Chavitz does have uh, unilateral subpoena power, so uh, he has and will continue to use that, I'm sure, uh, to say, wait, here's a, here's the thing. Um, I, I don't believe you've given me all the documents, uh, and so I want more. In this situation, what he's trying to go after is uh, essentially to pursue a perjury charge against Secretary Clinton, uh, saying, you know, she may have lied to the House uh, when she testified about uh, her private email server. Uh, some experts are saying that's pretty uh, pretty hard to to prove that she would have lied, and she could, they have to prove that she had to know some of this stuff. Uh, I do have to say her response has been pretty funny. Uh, her response, she told reporters in Florida a few days ago, uh, I believe I have created so many jobs in the sort of conspiracy theory machine factory because, honestly, they never quit. <laughs> you mentioned that, that there's been uh, requests and investigations in the past. What, what is the general consensus that we've gotten from investigators that have looked into her emails? I was going to say one more time. I cut out for a second. I apologize. Oh, no trouble. The, what's the consensus on the investigations that have so far been completed into her emails? Oh, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, uh, the FBI obviously spent a long time investigating this. Uh, several queries from the House uh, have turned up essentially the same thing. 
there's no criminal wrongdoing, and the secretary has admitted to uh, making mistakes. She says, you know, over her long career, this is one of the mistakes she's made, and she has, you know, admitted to that and, and apologized for it. Uh, but there's been no proof of any criminal wrongdoing. Now, this next go about, I guess, uh, with Congressman Chaffetz is uh, saying, okay, some newly released FBI uh, investigatory uh, documents show that there was a, a tech who thought he had deleted a cache of emails, uh, and when they got a subpoena, uh, he later went on in and actually did delete those um, using a, a software called BleachBit, which makes it you know irreversible. You can't actually even go to retrieve those. Uh, so Chavis is trying a new tactic, I guess, in some ways uh, that he's tried before, uh, and this is this is obviously. You know, not good for the secretary. She'd like to have moved on from the uh, the damn emails, as Bernie Sanders once called them. Uh, but uh, it's it's not going to go away before the election. If she does win the uh, the, the presidency, uh, you know, I you know, highly uh, expect that Chaffetz will continue to be a thorn in her side. Uh, with these latest pursuits by Representative Chaffetz, what what are the best and worst case scenarios for Secretary Clinton? Uh, for her, um, you know, look, if uh, the DOJ declines to investigate, they say, look, we. There've been enough probes in there. So there's no, there's no uh, here here. Uh, so that's the best case scenario. For the worst is that the DOJ says, okay, look, political pressure. We want to be above board. They assign a special prosecutor. So that's where we saw things happen with with Bill Clinton, for example, when he was in the White House. You get a special prosecutor. They have a lot more leeway. They don't have any pressure from the administration on what to do. They can kind of do their own thing. Then a special prosecutor starts investigating this and maybe even leaks out tidbits in October uh, because they're October surprise right before the election uh, that's hard to uh, recover from. Does it appear that this issue is, is carrying weight with voters? What, how is this translating into the election cycle? You know, obviously, it works very well on the right. Uh, the uh, the Republicans use this a lot during the Republican National Convention. It was mentioned, uh, you know, a gazillion times. It's mentioned. Donald Trump mentions this uh, quite often on the campaign trail, uh, and it does galvanize uh, Republicans and conservatives uh, against her who don't believe she's trustworthy and shouldn't be trusted with uh, national secrets uh, and 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 national security. Uh, on the um, but the goal, I guess, here is to, is to target those independents who may swing one way or the other and try to build the narrative that, uh, you know, she screwed up so badly, you really don't want her to be president because she couldn't handle the job as Secretary of State. Uh, but for, you know, so many people, it does seem to be like, didn't we discuss this already? Haven't we already taken care of this? Uh, and it will be interesting to see how it plays in, you know, some of the swing states uh, uh, that see if voters actually uh, really do care about this or really would rather hear a plan for what you're going to do for the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy, before we let you go, any other thoughts on this? No, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, next uh, 60 days or whatever it is left. Uh, I just wish this election was over already, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you're not the only person feeling that way. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Burr from the, the Tribune's Washington, D.C. Bureau, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Ben. A uh, quick reminder to listeners, you can join this conversation with your calls at 801-355-TALK. That's 801-355-8255. Uh, government editor Dan Harry, we saw a few more polls for the state of Utah this week. What? Uh, how is the presidential race shaping up in the Beehive State? What we're seeing still is that uh, Donald Trump is probably the least popular Republican candidate for president we've seen here in, uh, well, more than a generation, easily. And uh, he has very high disapproval ratings. 
on the other side, uh, Hillary Clinton does as well. And so Trump has maintaining a lead. Uh, the closest we've seen was a Tribune poll in June, and that's where they were dead even. And the more recent polls have shown generally, you know, uh, like a 10 to 15 point spread there. So um, there's still a lot of folks that are looking at Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate. There are still, I think, a lot of folks, and he's not really registered on a lot of these polls. Some of them have not included him. Some of them have started to show some traction for Evan McMullen, who's an independent candidate, is a Utah native, a Mormon, former CIA operative, and he's uh, offering sort of the anti-Trump alternative if you don't want to vote for a libertarian. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it would be surprising if Hillary Clinton took Utah. We've got a lot of publicity about that and speculation that, you know, if Trump can't win Utah, then he is doomed for certain. But uh, in the end, a lot of the Republicans, I think, will go home and, and uh, maybe hold their noses, but they'll vote for Donald Trump. A new 50-state poll showed uh, Gary Johnson in a, in a pretty strong third behind Clinton in Utah. Is is there a sense that he's hit his ceiling, or is he maybe rising to second place in the state? Well, Gary Johnson hopes he hasn't hit his ceiling. You know, the one thing that he and uh, his vice presidential running mate, uh, uh, Bill Weld, the former uh, Republican governor of Massachusetts, hope is they can they can crack the 15 percentage point. Uh, barrier in the polls, because if they do, they'll be included in the national presidential debates. And that is a huge uh, uh, stepping stone for them. If they're able to do that, you know, they they really could uh, do something that uh, a third party candidate hasn't done probably since Ross Perot, which is get up into the, you know, the 20 and 30 percent margin. Um, so that's what they're really hoping for right now. Um, they haven't been. They haven't gotten there. They're they're about an average of ten percent in national polls. So they've got some some work to do to to crack that nut. And not very much time to. No, not very much time at all. We saw the same thing here in a poll um, that uh, the debate commission, Utah Debate Commission, did in Utah, where uh, the they they do a poll to determine who will be included in their statewide debates. And they're, they're pretty big deals. They're televised statewide. Uh, they're, in many cases, the only time that voters get a chance to see these candidates head-to-head in Utah. And uh, not a single one of the third-party candidates made the cut. Uh, some came very close, a couple libertarians, including Andrew McCullough in the attorney general's race. But uh, none... Uh, and there, so there were four candidates that came within a one percentage point uh, gap of making that cut, but none did. So what you'll see in the Utah debates, which start later this month with the attorney general's race, uh, you'll just see a head-to-head Republican-Democrat. Excellent. Uh, Dan, we'll come right back to you. We have a caller. Uh, Jim from St. George is curious, why, with everything going on in the country, is Jim Ch- uh, Jason Chaffetz focusing on emails? Jim, thanks for calling. Hey, hi, how are you today? Good, how are you? What's your question, Jim? Good. I am just at a loss, a complete and utter loss. I am an independent in Utah, and there is so much else going on in this country. We don't have a balanced budget. You know, we're dealing with, with people that are refugees that need our compassion and our help, and they're so concerned with 
making her look bad that they won't even do their job. I mean, for crying out loud, what is going on? Has everybody lost their common sense? All right, thanks, Jim. Uh, Dan Harry, has everyone lost their common sense? Well, you know, sometimes it looks that way. It's so partisan in Washington now that it's become sort of just accepted that the role of the oversight committee chairman, in this case, Jason Chaffetz, is to try to bring down the administration, to try to make the administration look bad. This is a little bit different because, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton is not part of the administration right now. She's a candidate. She's, she's a private citizen. Uh, and you don't see that oversight committee going after private citizens very much. Obviously, it's because she's a candidate for president. Uh, the one person that is really happy about the focus on Hillary Clinton is John Kuskegan, who is the IRS commissioner. And he was the previous target of this committee and, and Jason Chaffetz. Uh, Chaffetz has been trying to get him impeached. So he's, he's happy that the focus is taken off of him right now. Uh, another story this week, uh, Democrat Mike Weinholz traded words with Utah GOP Chairman James Evans over a fundraiser he's holding tonight. Uh, what happened there? So Mike Weinholz, uh, first-time candidate, is running for governor, a Democrat, and he's holding a fundraiser raiser at uh, Saturday's Voyeur. And uh, anybody who knows Saturday's Voyeur knows that it's a satire and parody of Utah culture. And, of course, part of that is the LDS religion and culture. And so uh, James Evans uh, took to Twitter to tweet his uh, disgust for this, and he called it repugnant religious bigotry. Um, you know, he's going after the Democratic candidate, and that's part of his role. Uh, James Evans is one who likes hyperbole, and so we're kind of used to that. But Weinholz defended himself. He said, you know, this isn't religious bigotry, it's satire, it's parody, and people who are offended by this wouldn't vote for me anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. It may not be the wisest strategy for somebody who is thinks that they have a real shot at winning this election. The polls indicate that Mike Weinholz uh, is going to have a very tough time ahead. All right. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break. Ahead on the show, we'll be talking about Utah's algal bloom summer. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on KCPW in the greater Salt Lake Valley and throughout the state on Utah Public Radio. We'll be right back. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, celebrating homecoming week with the Saturday morning parade on September 24th. Information at usu.edu slash homecoming. And the Escalante Canyons Art Festival, Everett Roost Days, September 16th through the 25th, including art exhibitions, demonstrations, and live music. Details at escalantecanyonsartfestival.org. Hi, I'm Candy Palmiter. The Toronto International Film Festival is on. And next time on Q, our coverage will kick off with David Oyelowo talking about his movie, A United Kingdom. Plus, we'll have live music from R&B singer Charlotte Day Wilson. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines, the Salt Lake Tribune Reporter News Roundup, heard on KCPW and Utah Public Radio. 
I'm Benjamin Wood, filling in for Roger McDonough, and joined for the remainder of this hour by Salt Lake Tribune reporters Emma Penrod and Kyle Goon, and by editor Dan Harry. We're digging into this past week's news, and you can join the conversation, commenting at the Behind the Headlines page, currently live at sltrib.com, or calling us at 801-355-TALK. That's 801-355-8255. Emma Penrod, you've been covering the algal blooms across the state this summer. Uh, In a nutshell, what happened to Utah's waterways this year? Oh, in a nutshell? In a nutshell. <laughs> we I can get into a, the specifics, but for okay. people who haven't heard. I, I guess the in the nutshell, uh, Utah Lake in particular has had some fairly significant troubles with algal blooms this summer, beginning in about mid-July. Uh, there was one, I guess, especially large algal bloom. They're, they're kind of looking at the other issues as somewhat separate, but the, that ultimately uh, spread outside of Utah Lake and went down the Jordan River. Um, quite a good ways. Um, it is since kind of resolved, but it's it's not actually entirely over. Um, parts of Utah Lake actually remain closed still. Um, it's the last I heard. In the most recent story, you put together a package over the weekend. You, you talked about not only the algae, but also low water levels like mm-hmm. at Utah Lake. Uh, would a snowy winter help pull us out of this, or is that would that not be enough? Um, possibly. So there's there's a number of factors that lead to the development of an algal bloom. And, you know, basically you need to have uh, warm, still, sunny water, and then you need to feed the algae. And if those things happen, then these uh, algae, which are actually, the, the algae in question are actually a bacteria, but they're called algae because they behave like algae. Um, they, these bacteria are always in the water. And when you create the ideal conditions, that's when they start to just multiply out of control and create these large blooms that can become toxic. Um, so part of that is the low water levels. When you draw down the low the, the water, you create a circumstance where you can heat the water up faster and get to those conditions more easily. So if it, presumably if there were more water in these systems because of a snowier winter or because of any number of other factors, uh, one could reduce the risk for an algal bloom. So if this were the new normal and we had similar blooms next summer or for the next several summers, what would the long-term impact be? Uh, well, we saw this summer, because of the interconnectivity of a lot of our water systems here on the Wasatch Front, um, we would probably start to see more of what we saw this summer with irrigation systems being shut down, uh, especially those irrigation systems here in Salt Lake County that take water out of Utah Lake. Since when it started spreading down the river, it also went into some of these irrigation companies' canals and uh, caused them to be closed. So we would probably see uh, some impact on water supply locally in the city. And, I mean, stretching that out further, I mean, I, would just, I expect that it impacts crops, livestock. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what are the long-term ramifications. Yeah, yeah, you would you would start to see, you know, possible crop impacts. Um definitely impacts to the livestock in particular because the livestock can't drink the water with the toxins in it. It could potentially kill the animals, and there have been cases where livestock have died because of exposure to algal blooms. Not necessarily here in Salt Lake County that I'm aware of, but um, elsewhere in the state. Um, there's, you know, two years ago uh, there were dogs that died as a result of exposure, so there's a risk to pets, and there is a, a hypothetical risk to humans if humans were to consume any of the. Uh, poisoned water. Um, that isn't terribly likely because humans usually know not to drink green-looking stagnant water, 
but you know, still a good idea to avoid that. Your your story mentioned um, the the human error, or at least criticisms of human water management, uh, and the role that could be playing in this. What what are critics suggesting sh- should be done differently to avoid these blooms? Uh, well, the most common criticism that I have heard is that the state has not established, as other states have done, uh, what are called minimum inflow requirements. It's basically a requirement that a certain minimum amount of water be left in a water body for the health of the ecosystem. Um, these we, we don't necessarily have uh, those kinds of requirements on a lot of uh, Utah waters, including like Utah Lake, and so it would allow them to potentially be drawn down further and further as human demands increase, both upstream, preventing water to get it from getting into the uh, lakes, which happened this year on Utah Lake. They had chose to fill the uh, upstream reservoirs and not release as much water down to Utah Lake. Um, as well as you know, water being removed downstream, which there's there's a fair number of people, like I mentioned, the irrigation companies and others, including Salt Lake City, who draw uh, quite a lot of water out of Utah Lake. So as you as you impact those things, if there isn't a, a minimum requirement that says there needs to be this much water, you could potentially keep drawing down and drawing down and, and making the water levels even lower. You mentioned the the ideal conditions that summer months are prone to give these algae blooms. With with the summer season behind us, is this expected to now, is this also behind us or is this ongoing? As temperatures drop, you would expect to see the uh, algal blooms dissipate. Um, I understand through October is considered normal uh, for these kinds of things. It takes a little while. You know, there's kind of a delayed reaction uh, as the waters cool down a bit. So September and October are actually considered the normal months for algal blooms. So we may cont- continue to see kind of some some more algal blooms, uh, maybe the blooms kind of coming back in places where they aren't totally gone. And then as, as things cool down, they will you know, die off. Your last story included a map of active algal blooms in mm-hmm. the state. I counted eight, mostly in Utah County, give or take. Uh, are, are those still active, all of them? Um, I believe many of them are. Uh, the last update was on September 2nd, and there are there there were still numerous areas where there were warnings and advisories in place asking people not to uh, get in the water. They weren't necessarily mandatory except for, I believe, on the Lincoln Harbor, which I believe is still closed on Utah Lake. Um, I believe Schofield may be closed as well. Uh, I haven't heard that it's reopened. Okay. That one is unrelated, though, to the issues on uh, Utah Lake. Those systems aren't connected. Great. Well, thank you, Emma Penrod. Uh, pivoting a little bit to another area of the, the outdoors, uh, Dan Harriet, uh, Governor Gary Herbert mentioned this week that he's hoping to meet with the Obama administration about the Bears Ears area. Uh, do we know anything of what his plan might be or what he's proposing? No, he was very coy about not releasing any details. He said uh, he suggested there might be an alternative plan that he's taking back uh, to Washington to talk to Interior Secretary Sally Jewell. And uh, he wouldn't release any details. Uh, a lot of folks speculate that uh, that might just be the bears, east, bears, bears ears excuse me, piece of the uh, public lands initiative that Rob Bishop and Jason Chaffetz are sponsoring. And, uh, you know, environmental groups and some of the uh, Indian tribes involved down there have rejected that proposal. Uh, it's broader than Bears Ears, but uh, th- that's the speculation that it may be sim- very similar to the the uh, conservation area piece that that uh, legislation proposes. Um, you mentioned Representative Bishop's plan uh, and mm-hmm. some of the other proposals out there. Sh- should those not 
go through Congress. Do we have a sense of what potential there is? Well, for their... it doesn't look like they'll go through Congress. I mean, you know, it was introduced uh, f- relatively late. If everyone had been on board and this was getting accolades from all sides, you, you could have seen legislation that that went through the process quickly. But, you know, it, it's being uh, criticized by many different groups. And uh, it just appears at this point that there's no way that legislation is going to go through, which, you know, raises once again the prospect that the president, before he leaves office, will declare a national monument. And, of course, that's what the governor and and, uh, members of our delegation and others are trying to prevent. Do, Do we have a sense of how likely that is? Um, you know, I hate to prognosticate, but uh, this president has prided himself on protecting more public lands than any of his predecessors. He's talked, uh, and his uh, Sally Jewell and others have talked about protecting um, lands that have archaeological features and that are uh, treasured and considered sacred by other cultures. You know, he's he dropped some fairly big hints that this well could be uh, one of his national monuments before he leaves office. What do the people of Utah in in, in total think of that? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, that's one area where polling, you know, people ask, well, why are these polls all over the place? That's one area where polls have really been no help in deciding how Utahns feel about this. Uh, one poll will come out and say that, uh, you know, 19% of Utahns approve a national monument. Uh, another poll will come out and say a majority of Utahns. So I honestly do not know. I don't know what poll to trust. I don't know if I trust any of those polls. So uh, certainly the elected leaders are opposed to uh, the creation of a national monument. Where the Native Americans stand, again, it's very confusing. Um, you know, uh, Rebecca Benali, who's a San Juan County commissioner in Navajo, has uh, come out against, very strong against the creation of the monument. But a lot of other tribal leaders have fully supported it. So uh, I think there's a lot of mixed feelings, and we we don't we really don't know what the public sentiment is. And then I believe uh, Representative Bishop not too long ago said that no one within a four-hour drive of Bears Ears supports a monument. Hyperbole. You know, uh, Rob Bishop is prone to that. Uh, uh, He's made some comments that I don't think have helped his cause in a lot of ways. But uh, I've known Rob for a long time back when he was in the Utah legislature, and he just can't help (laughs) making statements like that. Uh, Sometimes they're tongue-in-cheek, but, um, you know, uh, that's not true. How much more time is there for Congress to act on this? I understand their their term is expiring. Yeah, they right now Congress's main interest is not the country; it is the election, and they want to uh, take care of some budget matters and some other things, and and get the hell out of Dodge and go back to their districts and run for re-election. So they're not going to be in in you know in session very long, and. Uh, like I said, the prospects of that kind of legislation passing this year are looking dimmer and dimmer. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dan. Listeners, we'd love to get your thoughts on this or anything else in the local news. Call us at 801-355-TALK with your questions. We can take them live on air or you can leave them for us to discuss. You can also comment at sltrib.com. Just follow the Behind the Headlines link on the homepage. 
We're going to have to take another quick break, but we'll return in a moment. This is Behind the Headlines on KCPW and Utah Public Radio. Stay with us. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, celebrating homecoming week with the Saturday morning parade on September 24th. Information at usu.edu slash homecoming. And the Escalante Canyons Art Festival, Everett Roost Days, September 16th through the 25th, including art exhibitions, demonstrations, and live music. Details at escalantecanyonsartfestival.org. In a rare move, Uber gave away some data. Turns out it pays a lot to keep prices low. Different people get presented with different prices at different times. Whether or not they buy at that price is what helps determine the amount of consumer surplus. I'm Molly Wood. What that could mean for riders next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. I'm Benjamin Wood, filling in for Roger McDonough. Joined in studio this hour by the Solid Tribune's Dan Harry, Emma Penrod, and Kyle Goon. Kyle, thanks for being patient. Uh, I don't follow sports ball, but I'm told something big is happening this weekend. Yeah, um, there's something going on. Um, So Utah and BYU are playing in football, which, um, depending on your perspective, is either a great rivalry in college sports and one of the most decorated in in the entire country, or the worst thing ever, and these teams should never play, and it, it evolves into or devolves into um, horrible dinner and ward conversations. Um, so I mean, it's it's obviously a big thing going on, and then creates a lot of conversation around the state about football and other things um, where people kind of stand in their loyalties, and and um, it's kind of a Kind of an interesting thing for me, not being from Utah, to kind of witness culturally. A lot happening. Who's the favorite to win? Um, Utah right now is a slight favorite, 3.5 by Vegas. Um, so, you know, that's basically an even match since Utah's playing at home at Rice Eccles on Saturday at 5.30 on Fox. Um, and, uh, you know, Utah has won five straight in the series. So they, they've had a nice little run, including a 35-28 win in the Las Vegas Bowl last year um, to end the season. So BYU is really smarting, um, but they have a new coach, Kalani Sataki, who used to coach at Utah as the defensive coordinator. So that's kind of made a fun storyline. Um, you know, in the last couple years, Coach Kyle Whittingham and BYU coach Bronco Mendenhall didn't get along at all, couldn't really stand to be in the same room together. Um, a lot of people have talked about the rivalry becoming more nasty, especially after Utah decided to put it on hiatus in 2014 and 2015. Um, but, uh, you know, with Kalani Sataki, he has history with Utah. He said he has no ill will. Um, he loved his time at Utah. You know, he said earlier that he is honored to be rivals with Utah, which is kind of an interesting tone setter. I don't know if it's changed how the fans feel about the game, but it certainly has uh, the dialogue between coaches has definitely changed. Uh, in in past years, the U and BYU were in the same conference. Now the U is in the Pac-12, BYU is independent. Uh, setting aside the passions and the traditions, does this rival still have the cachet that it used to? I, I think um, nationally it certainly does. I think it 
it offers both teams uh, an opportunity to kind of step up in prime time. I mean, the game is going to be on Fox um, rather than one of the cable channels. Um, and it was a big deal last year when they played in a bowl game, which had never happened before because they were in the same conference. Um, so I think nationally, um, it's a week when people take notice of both Utah and BYU. I think maybe to people who live here, um, maybe that gets that perspective gets a little lost. Um, I mean, obviously, Utah, their visibility has been enhanced by the move to the Pac-12 when they play USC and UCLA and Oregon. Um, but, you know, in many ways, Utah is still working to build its its national presence. And when you compare the two schools, BYU has way more national presence and way more fans um, at away games and, and just more of a following because it's of its affiliation with the Mormon church. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, I think, a a game that builds up both schools. If you look at the college sports uh, schedule this weekend, um, there's not really a, no, a lot of big games going on. This is arguably one of the top two or three biggest games in college football this weekend. So, you know, it's 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 definitely a big deal. Uh, a lot of eyes on BYU this year as they uh, look to be included into the Big 12 conference expansion. Uh, would a win or loss for BYU this weekend affect their chances for expansion? No. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. I th- I think certainly winning and proving you can win um, at the Power Five level, um, you know, in general helps. I don't think BYU's case is going to be decided at all in one individual game. Um, they had a good start this season last week when um, they won Kalani Sataki's first game as head coach, um, and they won they won it against Arizona, which is another Pac-12 team. Um, but you know. It's it's ultimately not make or break for BYU, and and get in terms of getting to the Big Twelve, I think what the Big Twelve is going to be concerned about is, you know, what is the following, what is the the TV following, what what can they get um, from BYU's market share in Utah and elsewhere in the country, what can they get, um, you know, academically from adding BYU, um, obviously, you know, the stories the Tribune has reported about sexual assaults and and. Um, sexual orientation being a, an issue on BYU's campus is something I think um, the Big 12 is considering probably more seriously than the the individual results of any one football game. Uh, what about for the U of U? What would a win or loss mean for their season? Um, I, I mean, they uh, obviously, so they've won five times in a row, so it's kind of uh, seen as a fundamental part of their season at this point. Um, Kyle Winningham told the team apparently in 2009 According to multiple people, um, after they lost in, I think Provo, uh, that they were never going to lose the game again, and they have not. Um, so they they definitely enter the. I mean, I cover the team. They enter with a mindset of we don't lose to these guys. Uh, several players have told me that the coaches just kind of emphasize that as a theme. We never lose to them. Um, you know, becoming a Pac-12 program. Um, we saw a poll recently that covered a number of things, number of issues in Utah, but also um, showed that Utah is the most popular team within the state's borders. And I think that has definitely been um, a sign of Utah's recent success, its undefeated seasons in 2004, 2008, and also its move to the Pac-12. And to continue that momentum, I mean, you know, Utah can kind of continually create over the next couple of years if they keep winning these games. 
um, this narrative that they are the, the power program within the state, and that that will definitely be affected by whether or not BYU gets in the Big Twelve. But right now, they're owning that conversation. So, Cal, um, any predictions that you might be able to give us for the game? Yes, the two teams will play football starting <laughs> at five thirty. Well. Excellent. Uh, let's pivot a little bit to uh, prep sports. Uh, this week, there's been some talk about transfer rules and maybe doing away with those. Um, what are we hearing from the coaches and the school administrators about what's being proposed? Um, yeah, that's interesting. And it's being covered by both you and and Trevor Fibbs to kind of see that uh, the, the Board of Ed is kind of sparring with the UHSAA, which is the governing body of, of high school sports. And basically trying to strip one of the big regulations they have in um, you know regulating who can transfer between um, high schools and and for athletic reasons so uh, you know I used to cover prep sports um, now Trevor Fibs does a great job for us but um, you know there is always this undercurrent of worrying about kids transferring from have not schools to schools that have better athletic programs and facilities and more success, more history of success, um, you know, especially in the Salt Lake Valley. Um, you see schools like Murray and Hillcrest kind of losing ground to some of those South Valley schools like Alta and Bingham and, and Jordan and teams that, if you look around the different sports, they have very successful programs. Um, so there's always sort of that paranoia for a lot of schools that don't have strong, historically strong programs. And it's interesting to see sort of the, the Board of Ed trying to destroy that, that power that the UHSA um, traditionally has. I mean, I sat in on a bunch of hearings um, when I was a prep sports reporter, and, and there's always weird warp. It's a weird warp process, but uh, I think a lot of people, um, you know, Trevor did a great story about how the high school football coaches feel, which is, you know, maybe it's not a perfect process and how the UHSA regulates it, but it goes from not a perfect process to no process and no guidelines. And, and I think a lot of people feel like it would be sort of like the Wild West and kids could transfer at will. Rob Cuff, the executive director of the UHSA, he has said that if if the transfer rule is done away with, Utah would be the only state that he knows of without a transfer rule. Do you have any sense for how different states have approached this issue or how our policy compares to others? No, I, I mean, you know, I think a lot of states have processes to look at, um, you know, when a kid moves or a kid switches schools, why that is. And a lot of states have hearings. I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely sure if Utah's is, is very different. Um but it's 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 definitely a move that um, you look at. It's it's not um, Rob Cuff isn't making this up. There's hundreds of transfers every year in a in Utah um, based on athletics, and I, I tend to think it's not as much the kids try, trying to go somewhere else as the parents who want to see the kids go elsewhere. And and it's really interesting the wide variety of. Right now, they have you know a hardship waiver that they require, um, and you know people kind of go into the UHSA and and have these meetings where they talk about sad stories about oh so and so's uh, business isn't doing as well, and so and so you know had some health problems, or so and so got bullied at school, and all kinds of stuff to to kind of drag out uh, 
these processes and get an approval so they don't have to sit out a year. But, um, you know, it's it's definitely something that the UHSA, it's one of their major arms and one of their major duties to kind of regulate that and see whether people are moving and, and creating an unfair balance in competition. Dan Harry. Can I just ask what the impetus for this is? I mean, is there some school that sees advantage and they've gotten their folks to lobby for this? Or, I mean, where, where is this coming from? Well, I, I think it's always existed, actually. When I was a preps reporter, I know Mark Madsen. Um, As a state senator? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, proposed several bills to basically strip the UHSA of the transfer pr- power they had. Um, and I think to some people, it's sort of a political stance. You know, people should be able to transfer freely throughout schools and have that choice. Um, so, so a libertarian philosophy more than I'm going to help the school in my district or... Yeah. Um, you know, I think, um, as, as Ben's story pointed out today, um, a lot of people are kind of pointing to Mountain Crest and Summon Academy as the impetus for the most recent um, issues in the transfer rule. Then um, Mountain Crest, they, changed, they couldn't change their classification um, when they lost kids to the new high school, which is um, Ridgeline. Is that right? I forget the name. That's I've made a joke that uh, one day we're going to have a high school called Ridge Ridge High School because um, every new high school has Ridge or Line or Sky in it. But I digress. Um, <laughs> I uh, uh, so so they couldn't reclassify. Which you know, when you have fewer kids than the schools you're competing against, um, you know, you're probably bound to lose some more football, basketball, whatever games, and um, you know. Kids kind of probably want to have their choice. They probably don't want to get beat up, and it's and, and I think maybe Mountain Crest, um, you know, they probably are a little bit vengeful against the UHSA. I don't know how much real power they have in this process, um, but you know, I think there are people out there who kind of take the view that the UHSA is uh, you know, maybe a little draconian um, in some respects in the way they regulate and and kind of. Um, you know, make these judgments, and I've been in on the classification hearings, and those are always very tribal. Uh, but uh, um, you know, it's it's interesting. Just there's always been um, a faction of people, I think, who believe that the UHSA um, in its oversight role just either should its power should be greatly reduced or it shouldn't exist at all. Thanks, Cal. Uh, the school board, they revised their policy yesterday. It would now allow for a single transfer after a student has established eligibility. Uh, that is scheduled to come up before the board today. So, listeners, uh, look for updates on that today in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, the hour has gone by, and we've come to our final segment of the show, the Underplayed Stories of the Week, where we look at important and meaningful stories that maybe flew under the public radar. Uh, Emma Penrod, let's start with you. Do you have an Underplayed Story this week? Okay, so my story isn't actually important or meaningful. It's just humorous. But uh, I guess the uh, West Valley B- City Police Department are looking for a man they say used a stolen credit card to buy $200 worth of Starbucks gift cards. Uh, I guess assuming that this guy is a coffee lover based on what he took, they are saying that if he uh, will come with him and visit them in jail, they will make sure he gets coffee. It just won't be any of the fancy pumpkin spice kind. Yeah, I probably won't be able to get a macchiato. Excellent. Dan Harry, your pick this week. 
I am going to pick something that is not humorous, and but I think is important, and that is uh, Jessica Miller, who's a reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune and with others, had been covering the sexual abuse uh, stories, uh, sexual assault stories from university campuses, won a victory yesterday before the State Records Committee to get access to records of BYU uh, accessing a police database. And um, the information she's going to be getting is limited, but I think that she is a resourceful person that can figure out this uh, claim is that BYU, through its police, and is sharing information with the Honor Code uh, office, and BYU denies that, uh, that it, this is a problem because uh, victims of assault are uh, often not reporting an assault because they're afraid of being coming under investigation themselves by the the school honor for the school honor code violations. So uh, I think that's a big victory. I think uh, we're going to see in the coming weeks that that's going to open up some more information. The police in Provo and Orem fought this very hard. Uh, the attorney general's office tried to get the records committee not to open this up. Uh, so it's a pretty important open records victory. Mm-hmm. And listeners, of course, have uh, watched the coverage of the Salt Lake Tribune. There'll be more on that story as that information is released. Uh, Kyle Goon, I stole your underplayed briefly. Is there another story that you'd like to mention? Um, I'm just going to stick to sports <laughs> and follow the advice of everyone on my Twitter feed. Um, uh, no, I, I so Utah State, which is another school I used to cover, I was going to go play USC this week. Um, it's sort of, I think, on its face, uh, you know, a, a small school versus big school. Um, and Utah State actually played them in 2013 when I covered them and and, and lost there. But and but they have constantly uh, scheduled a power five, a big power five opponent every year, and never really broken through. Um, but I think this could be the year where they do it. Um, they, they're just coming off a pounding of Weber State, um, and USC is coming off a mauling by Alabama, where they scored only six points and showed a lot of workers and organizational flaws and sort of uh, you know, just some problems. Um, and they had a big blowout fight in practice this week with their star wide receiver. So I think USC is a little basket casey right now, and uh, and Utah State is a mid-major that's been, um, you know, modestly successful for the last six or seven years. Uh, and I think they might have a chance to win this week under Coach Matt Wells. All right. Well, lastly, my selection, after all that sports talk, my pick is Star Trek, uh, which debuted on television 50 years ago yesterday. The show explored strange new worlds, sought out new life and new civilizations, and boldly went where no franchise had gone before. Kyle Goon, Dan Harry, Emma Penrod, thanks to all of you for being on the show today. Thank you, Ben. And thanks to Tommy Burr for joining us from Washington, D.C. We'll wrap up this week with Salt Lake Tribune columnist Robert Kirby. This week he speaks with Roger McDonough about a new fad, or a newish fad anyway, taking the globe by storm. Robert Kirby, Pokemon Go. Ah, uh, it's. Uh. Robert Kirby, Pokemon Go. Ah, uh, it's. Oh, jeez. I... You see people here on, on Library Square, we're looking out onto the plaza yeah. now, and you see them stop and look at their phones and do whatever it They'll is they do. They'll do it in cars, they do it on tracks on the way home, you know, ride tracks. And most people are, they're not just texting anymore, they're doing right. this, you know, and it's like, 
e-zombies. And it can be dangerous. Oh, yeah, it definitely can. I've, I've watched people downtown trip over gutters and fall flat. <laughs> Well, you say it's it's not. You say that Pokemon Go, um, when you get right down to it, in a column that you wrote, isn't all that different from other alternate reality addictions or fixations. You mention a, a couple. One of them is Pong, an early one. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first video game I ever played was Pong, um, and it came out oh sometime after I got home from my mission, and we went to a ward party, and somebody had actually bought a Pong game, the whole console, which was about the size of a TV. And we were playing it and thought, this was a marvel, this is great. You know, little did we know what was coming. Right. Yeah. How, oh, how things have changed when you have characters out in real space. <laughs> yeah, and where you're, you know, the average kid commits, what, you know, 10,000 homicides by the time he's... 13 or whatever. Well, in, in your column, you write about a fear you have, and it's kind of a big... Uh, what if on the alternate reality type of games we play. Uh, maybe you could read us a little bit of that. The point is that playing Pokemon Go is so absorbing that people not only forget it isn't real, but also stop paying attention to stuff that actually is real. <laughs> Things like open manholes, cliffs, traffic, dangerous alleys, and beware of dog signs. <laughs> Pokemon Go has already been blamed for car crashes, assaults, bad falls, failed relationships, elephant stampedes, and possibly even the start of another blank religion. <laughs> That's what happens when you aren't paying attention. When the electronic game Pong first came out in the early 70s, everyone raved about it, a game that you could actually play on television far out. The one thing you couldn't do with Pong back then was play it while driving, hiking, <laughs> Or skydiving. Pong was played on a box the size of a small refrigerator. You pretty much had to stay put in order to play it. But every generation seems to have an alternate reality fixation slash addiction. There's one thing about alternate reality type games that worries me. What if they aren't an alternate reality? What if the stuff you're doing is exactly happening in another dimension? Suppose Pokemon Go, Call of Duty, Street Fighter, or Mario Brothers were real but they were true alternate realities that we allowed ourselves to be dragged into as part of the spectacle. We would have no idea the damage we were causing by participating in it. It would explain a lot, though. You think Pokemon Go is potentially dangerous? Just wait until we get to level 10 of Trump and Hillary. We're getting close. Yeah, we are. Uh, I, that's a really bizarre supposition, though, the idea that what you're doing on, on your virtual screen there or in your VR cage, whatever it is that you're engaged in, is actually happening somewhere in an alternate. It's probably a good Twilight Zone episode or something. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Robert Kirby, thanks very much for coming in. You bet. Take care. That's Salt Lake Tribune columnist Robert Kirby. You can find all of his opinions and the Kirby archives at sltrib.com. That's it for today's edition of Behind the Headlines, a production of KCPW Radio, Utah Public Radio, and the Salt Lake Tribune. If you missed any of today's show, the episode will be rebroadcast on Sunday at 10 a.m. Coming up next, KCPW presents What It Takes, Chasing Graduation at High Poverty High Schools. Thanks to Jesse Ellis at KCPW, Tom Williams and Connor Rivers at Utah Public Radio, and the Tribune's Emily Means. I'm Benjamin Wood, filling in once again for Roger McDonough. I'll be here again next week, but then Roger will be back for your news needs. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
you can become part of a national conversation taking place in our community about life, death, and what matters most to patients and families experiencing serious illness. Utah Public Radio, Sunshine Terrace, and Cash Valley Senior Consulting invite you to a film screening and panel discussion of the PBS Frontline program, Being Mortal. Based on the book by Boston physician Atul Gawande, he explores the relationship doctors have with patients who are nearing the end of life. Join us Wednesday, September 14th at 7 p.m. at the USU Lundstrom Student Learning Center. More information at upr.org. This is Terry Guy, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. UPR is a statewide public radio station serving the citizens of Utah since 1953. Our listeners are educated, socially conscious, and enjoy arts and culture. They are your loyal patrons. If you're looking to make a smart business decision, become a UPR sponsor. For more information, call 435-797-3141. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.